Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, I got to tell you, there's much going on in the sports world, but my head is in only one place, and that's with the the death of one of my heroes, uh, hip-hop artist True Goy the Dove, a.k.a. Plug 2, a.k.a. Dave, a.k.a. David Jolly Jolliker. And, man, I cannot believe that True Goy has passed. We're going to talk to quite literally the smartest hip-hop head I know, uh, he's known as DJ Deep Rock uh, with the hip-hop group Council of Word. In the mix and on the hunt, he's the program manager for KGNU Community Radio out in Denver. His name is Dave Ashton. Can't think of anyone I'd rather talk to about this. Also, I've got some choice words about the Super Bowl. You know I was going to speak about that. Just stand up and just sit down awards and more. But first, let's talk to Dave Ashton about David Jolly Jolliker, a.k.a. True Goy the Dove, a.k.a. Dave, a.k.a. Plug 2, a.k.a. one of the people who made up the great De La Soul. Yo, Dave Ashton, how you doing, sir? I'm 100% great. How are you, Dave Z? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You know, there's a lot of sports news this week, and I basically, you know, stuck a trident in all of it and put it all down because the only thing I can really think about is the death of True Goy the Dove. And so, you know, I wanted to ask you just from the start, just so my listeners who maybe didn't grow up in the Daisy age and don't quite understand what was different about De La when they broke out on the scene. And please feel free to talk about yourself and what you were listening to and what De La interceded into as far as your own hip hop world. For sure. That's, that's a great question. Um, what was, you know, I've been thinking about what was really different about De La Soul um, since Dave, True Goy the Dove passed, and it's it has a lot to do not only with the music that they made, but like the style that they brought forward. Um, I, I would hesitate to call it fashion, but really before De La Soul, um, the old school of rap had like specific uniforms. Right. And even like groups, you know, and, and of course it was all about shouting in rap. Um over big, big beats, big rocking in your face beats. Um, 
they even groups like KRS-One, Boogie Down Productions, Eric B and Rakim, they they toned down the shouting rap a couple years before Dela, but they still wore Dapper Dan suits and um, you know big leather get-ups that were totally removed from anything that kids would have. And so dressing hip-hop was kind of like an act of costuming, if you could even get to this stuff, if you could find it. So De La right. were the first ones to come with a look that was down to earth, and in it, it caught like wildfire. Um, for kids to be able to like wear some baggy clothes with a unique, like colorful pattern and say, okay, this is hip hop. You don't have to have a troop suit. You don't need Pumas um, or a Kango and all of these things. And, and they talked deliberately about that on the first record. So what that tied into was then their um, really unique at the time Afrocentrism which was an Afrocentrism that embraced difference because there was it was a very Afrocentric time in rap, but most of it being based on um, 5% ideologies. And De La didn't relate to knowledge, wisdom, understanding in their stuff whatsoever. They had a more of a pop culture kind of view on it than a um, specific like doctrine. Mm -hmm. Can I also ask you, um, and this relates to everything you just said, one of the things that Trugoy said that always stuck with me early in his career is he talked about how, De he was asked how De La got together, and he said, we were the hip-hop nerds. And I always felt like they played a role, and I just want your thoughts about this, where you didn't have to be too cool. You know, you could, as conventionally, which I feel like is what you're talking about with clothing, and it's like you could admit to being this thing called a hip hop nerd, almost like an outing. I mean, frankly, for people like yourself, like people who are just all in every aspect and love the minutia of it as much as you liked uh, partying and, you know, looking at rhyme flow. Yeah, for sure. And they they showed that with their choice of, um, you know, sample um, collaging mm. and really making it obscure and you know their first album like contains a game show with like questions of impenetrable knowledge <laughs> that's right <laughs> forgot that i'm going to ask an amount of four questions and you'll try to answer them correctly now you out there in the audience can answer along with them how many feathers are on a purdue chicken how many fibers are intertwined in a shredded wheat biscuit what does touche et lele poo mean? How many times did the Batmobile catch a flat? Now that we know the questions, we'll let the contestants think them over and we'll return right after these messages. Yeah, it's how many grooves are on a record? Prince Paul asks. Well, there's only one groove on a record. It starts and it goes all the way through. Mm -hmm. um, so, so they were really, you know, asking people to to think about things in a different way. And they were being presented in a very creative way that encouraged people to be creative. Mm, that's a great answer. Um, so what happened to a Daisy age and what happened to a greater degree uh, to the native tongues? Cause De La Soul, you know, Jungle Brothers, Tribe Called Quest connected the leaders of the new school. I mean, they seemed like this click that, you know, why couldn't that have gone on for 10, 20 years? I mean, they produced such incredible music. They were the best artists of their generation. What happened to them? Well, you know, in a sense, professionalism um, and having to make a living. Um, the Native Tongues being the sort of an idea and a concept more than a group mm. is, is something that never did go away. Mm. Um that, you know, Pazda News proclaims it dead on the Balloon Mind State album. And then two years later, 18 months later, whatever it is, says it's been reinstated um, in Stakes is High. And they're flaunting new members like Most Deaf, mm. Common, guys that were establishing themselves on their own. And I think that's really kind of important with all of the groups in native tongues is that they all were doing their own projects and had their own visions. You know, one of my favorite native tongue groups is black sheep. Engine, engine number nine on the New York transit line. If my train goes off the track, 
back, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. Back on the scene, crispy and clean. Only for the first album, which is incredibly humorous, tongue in cheek, wildly diverse, super long, like Three Feet High and Rising is as an album. But then Black Sheep's second album, Nonfiction, is sullen, angry, not embracing, and it's it's obvious the writing is on the wall that black sheep can't stay together, let alone stay inside of a larger collective. Mm. Wow. Um, yeah, black sheep was had, was tortured in many ways, uh, and I I hadn't even thought about nonfiction in years. Um, there's nothing on it. Like there's nothing anyone remembers. There's and same with you know some later Jungle Brothers albums. Um, it's just really tough to maintain a career. Mm -hmm. And then that reflects uh, as the 90s go on. And I, I mean, this could just be me and my generation, but I view the early 90s. People forget this as a time of like hope and change. And we're turning the page on all the Reagan bullshit. And the music is reflecting that in a lot of ways. And then as the 90s went on, it was a lot of dreams unfulfilled uh for hoping for that level of change and maybe that larger political climate also took its toll it did and rap became insular in the mid 90s where it was you know it was thugged out i mean people you know point to gangster rap on the west coast east coast rap was super thugged and uh, like the weirdos and the nerds were no longer really that safe. And that mm. kind of opened the lane for return to like a more peaceful black consciousness with neo soul artists in the late nineties. It had to be a response to how um, yes. just really rap got so gully. Wow. Symbolized in many respects by uh, the punch that Q-tip took from one of the people in Rex and effects. Like a, sim a symbolic moment. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And, you know, Tretch from Naughty by Nature, snatching up Paz de Noose and like squeezing him. I, maybe that's, you know, where his hairline started going back because of the, you can mm -hmm. keep, you can keep your Naughty by Nature's and your canes was something that he said on the stakes is high. I mean, they were label mates, but, you know, Tretch was more of the, probably the Tupac step to you school. Yeah. That, yeah, he had that song about Tupac. He did a whole song about like uh, seeing him in the afterlife. That was very, very intense. Morning uh, till I join you. Yeah, there, there you go. See, that, that, that's that's you right there. Um, so De La Soul, uh, an experience you and I shared together. Uh, we saw them live. And I saw them live several other times. I'm sure you did too. And from your mind, how was how was De La Soul? How was the great True Goy? How were they alive? Bro, the first time I saw De La Soul was in the summer of 1989 on the Nitro tour what? behind um, LL's Walking with a Panther album. And they played at McNichols Arena in Denver. And, you know, back then there were no DJs to entertain the crowd and there were no local opening acts. So De La's on the bill with NWA, Slick Rick and LL Cool J. Daylock comes on and the lights are still on in McNichols Arena. People are still walking down to their seats. The album had been out for about maybe four months and nobody was really checking for it. And they got booed mercilessly. Um, wow. You know, Denver was there to see NWA and to an extent LL. Um, and so they really, they were um, engulfed. And so... I so so when De La Soul is dead came out and they were just really so mad. I totally understood why. Mm. And watching them get booed by these people, I was like, "No, you can't do that. These guys are dope." <laughs> but of course, I'm in like row three sixty, so mm. I'm way up there, um, and very far removed from it. So I think what happened is that they really took a lot of those young experiences. You know, they were very young people when that was happening in city after city. Um, and then they and they were also like good friends with NWA and hung out with them on that tour, from what I've read. And so I think from there, they figured out pretty quickly, like they had to be able to learn how to um, control a crowd if this is going to be sustainable. So 
they went back and made an album to answer to all of you know that kind of criticism as well as developed a, a road show and so then through the years they became like a real through line to old school hip-hop with different call and responses uh. with a um flexibility inside of their show where it's not going to be the just the same show over and over but it's fun to them because they're they're calling audibles they're switching it up wow and uh i once caught a plantain uh that was when i was there with you caught a plantain or it might have just been a small banana <laughs> that trugoy was throwing them out into the crowd and <laughs> i ate it and later uh tried to smoke the peel because just felt this strong connection with Daylot at that moment. And do you remember they did me, myself and I with catcher's masks in front of their faces? started by saying we hate this song yes we hate this song we hate this song yes we hate this song before they started yeah they do that they i don't remember the catcher's masks that's amazing no not um, catcher's masks i'm sorry catcher's gloves and they press the gloves against their face as they were doing it <laughs> oh wow um yeah <laughs> isn't that crazy that is that is wild i don't have that imprinted on me. But I do remember that every time they would do me, myself and I, there would be some version of that. I remember a version of, um, we hate this song. You love this song. We hate this <laughs> song. You love this song. That's amazing. So I am just going to say, I think uh, that their first four albums just out of the gate before they started recording much more sporadically are up there with the best four albums any group has ever put out in any genre just out the gate like four banger classics and i just want to say the name of them and you just say to me your gut reaction all right three feet high and rising change the game mm. feel free to free feel free to expound okay i mean three feet high and rising welcomed real teenagers back into what people perceived as kids music opened the door for expression answering any offer service prerogative praise positively i'm acquitted enemies publicly shame my utility after the battle damn bitches i'm quitting de la soul is dead a lo-fi masterpiece um representing how fast young kids in the city have to grow up mm. any particular track off de la soul is dead if you had to think of the first one that comes into your head i've been thinking about millie pulled a pistol on santa because it is one of dave's greatest pieces of writing and playing a character yo millie what's the problem lately you've been busting on your dookie image someone must be Tugging. You were a dancer who could always be found clubbing. Now you're worried now with the frown you're lugging. Come to think your face mm. Okay, let's go to Balloon Mind State. Oh, Balloon Mind State. Um, lean and Mean. Um, so good. Such a great album. Um, you wanted it to have five more songs on it. And... Mm. You know, out of 11 songs, you've got like four singles that are that are incredible um, epic tracks. So really um, operating at a, at a high level. I am shorty. I be for 11. When they reminisce over you. For real. Mace chopped the record down to the phone. And now Renee King is on my telephone. But I got the ring ring. Ha ha. Hey, hey. They put forward that incredible young MC. And also maybe, you know, a time of frustration because there was supposed to be a big deal for Shorty Nomas um, mm. that, you know, it never worked out. Some of the different artists that appear on De La from time to time were unable to really launch. And it had maybe had something to do with their just real taste for, um, you know, 
different and unique talents that weren't always necessarily what the record industry was going to want to push. Mm, good call. Um, I think uh, my producer just texted me that he has a question for you. What's up? What's up, David? Yeah, man, no, I appreciate this sort of breakdown of, of the individual albums. Yeah, I was curious about something because I went back and listened to some of old De La Soul. You know, we talk a lot about De La Soul being sort of like nerdy hip hop, like conscious music, but very different from what was sort of taking place in rap around that time. And I'm wondering what you think, like, do you think that De La Soul is dead in some ways is almost like a response to a lot of that criticism and pushback on sort of Daisy Age, you know, hippie hip hop. Like, do you think there's a difference between the first and second album and even an album like Stakes is High in terms of how dark the sound is compared to some of the more early work? Well, um, yeah, it, it's definitely a pushback, of course, you know, to say that the Daisy Age is over, to say we're not going to run around with peace signs around our necks. Um, and really, though, they started receiving more criticism for De La Soul is Dead because the like critics in the press or whatever felt um, offended. And so mm. the 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 world embraced Three Feet High and Rising incredibly so. The hippie image was really pushed by Tommy Boy Records because mm -hmm. they didn't have anything else going on at the time. Their last hits were um, Force MDs and uh, Stetsa Sonic. Of course, mm. Prince Paul is like the gap between, you know, Stetsa to De La. And so they just put an incredible amount of, um, you know, graphic design effort and artistic um, input into how can we make these guys look more hippified. And then the fact that they wanted to wear ponchos instead of troop suits you know, um, every, for some reason that meant hippie to people. But I think it also, the hippie um, accusations came from the eclecticism of the stuff that they were sampling. Like the record they got sued for, um, the Turtles, you know, the Turtles was some hippie group um, mm -hmm. and ended up like, there's no love among hippies. We need that one point, however many seriously when it came down to it the turtles <laughs> put down the incense and went right. all in and called up the sharks so a lot of critics felt they lost soul is dead was bitter but the homies loved it and ring 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 ha ha hey is probably still people's ringtones hey how you doing sorry i can't get through why don't you leave your name it used to be on everyone's answering machine um, for years after that album was well-worn. Um, you know, they were able to like make incredible um, iconic songs out of it. And then of course, like uh, roller skating jam Saturdays. It's still a party track. You can always Absolutely. drop that in the mix. Absolutely. Yeah. Th that has, I mean, so I mean, the mu all the music stands the test of time, and that gets to the fourth one that a lot of people elied over. Stakes is high, had common on it, had consequence on it. Um, amazing record. What What's your response to Stakes is high? Well, Stakes is high was their first uh, um, album without working with Prince Paul, and you know, Prince Paul went off doing the Grave Diggers thing, getting his own label starting on handsome boy modeling school stuff and de la um begins to you know really have to look at it and say well you know creativity is not enough you know we've got to build this this power base and they were able to get some of the first really well-known works of the producer jd at the time now known of course as the late great jay dilla and they were right on the pulse of a new sound mm -hmm. um, and, you know, feeling reinvigorated about the native tongues, making records that resonated with the hood within the business. And, you know, um, the title track stakes is high, mm -hmm. um, opening it up for collaboration in a way that they always had been 
but really in a way that was like more targeted, you know, it's a little more random to have guru doing your chorus on Patty Duke and shorty mm-hmm. nomas on I am I be then it is to be like, okay, here's most deaf. Here's truth. Enola. Here's common. These are the new native tongues. MCs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it, fe- it felt aggressive in that way. And it's also a big comment on the Jiggy culture, too, where he's like, do not connect us with those champagne sipping money fakers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was strong. So you've been really generous with your time, but I really, you know, want you if you could. You've already done this and touched on this a bunch of ways. But if you could speak about uh, Dave's legacy, Trugoy's legacy in particular and the sauce that he brought to the mix. Yeah, he, it's such an interesting persona. I was really um, disappointed that there was no yogurt in my fridge this morning yeah. to prepare me for this. And I had to suffice on mere oatmeal. But, um, you know, he um, he, he's, he was a very um, reclusive guy. And what he would do is like charge his battery up and come out very forceful. You know, people would talk about Dela being very unassuming compared to other rap groups right in the industry when they were first getting started. And as time went on, um, Paz Denus, you know, is like the hardworking kind of taskmaster guy. DJ Maceo is the party rocker who's always, you know, more or less got a blunt that he's just put out. Um, and Dave plug two is he, he just comes out when he's needed and then disappears off the scene. Um, in this little book, I have this magazine, Frank 151, they put out a 20 year anniversary thing of the um, three feet high and rising album. And they list all of their um, AKAs, their different names. One of Dave's is uh, one of his names is nature's true hermit. Oh, wow. And, and but, but when he comes out like on the mic, he doesn't seem like somebody that like is lacking for friends. Mm-hmm. He just he's got, you know, he's got he's Dr. Ama too, Mr. Drama. And he's 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 swinging hard. I think as the um, collaborations between them like went on longer and longer, Dave emerges as like the harder MC than Pazda News. Mm. Wow. And if you had said that in the three feet high and rising De La Soul is dead era, people would have said, no, that's not going to happen. Like that to me, that's a plot twist. Indeed. Yeah. He, they did a song with a local rapper here in Denver named Kingdom. Kingdom did it all. He was like the hype man for the Denver Nuggets when, mm. you know, in the Iverson era and all the rest of it. They did this local 12 inch with Kingdom and Dave took his time on the mic to let to let off some shots at Eminem and 50 cent. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> so, you know, is there, um, as we, as we wrap up here and this has been just an absolute education, is there anything else you want to, Oh, I want to ask you this before, before I ask you that final question. So I'm actually going to three, two, one, this thing, three, two, one, you know, Dave, there are a lot of people listening to this. I hope, who are utterly unfamiliar or only superficially familiar with De La Soul, and you've given them such depth on who they were and who they are. But then there's this frustration about you're always hearing about them. They're going to be on the streaming services. Oh, but then they're not. And it's been so difficult. Do you, do you know anything about what's going on with that? And what do we lose by this younger generation not having that kind of immediate access they expect to this act? What a great question. And this is absolutely the conversation around De La for many years now, how to get stuff streaming. Uh, the resp- The reason seems to be that there's so many samples in a lot of, especially their earlier work, that the way that those samples were cleared at the time is not like legally um, relevant. They, they're going to have to go back. They have had to go back and do the whole same process of tracking down each and every one of these little tidbits. So um, 
that has been a whole and that's been probably pretty difficult um and i think it's been like to the t because their catalog was purchased by warner brothers music warner brothers bought the entire tommy boy catalog and so within tommy boy that would have been a priority within warner brothers it's part of a much larger picture so apparently in most of that most if not all of that work has been done and this is supposed to be like eminent at this point yeah it's and just still not happening though i mean if anything they should have rushed this crap uh right away um in honor of dave's passing so people could truly commune with the music um, i think that's likely they'll do that and the second part of the question um what are young people not accessing without the ability to um you know have de la on demand um i mean they're they're lacking access to what it really was uh to be like hip-hopping teenagers in the late 80s and early 90s at time which is now you know kind of seen in a, as a golden age mm -hmm. um but that perspective that they carried forward, the reliance on so much sampling was a desire to connect with the civil rights generation and all of the generations before us. So being able to, you know, get into all of that music, you can get there through De La Soul. And they'll also just baffle you. Like a lot of rappers, you don't know what they're saying because you can't make out the words now. But with De La, it's a lot of that early stuff. The meaning is kind of hard to penetrate. So it challenges your intellect. And then you're like, how is this so party rocking? But I don't really get what this guy is getting at. It has a, um, a, a, a kind of sticky quality where it sticks to you. You're reminded of things. You want to go back, figure it out a little bit more and um, delve deeper. Mm. Yeah, that, that's real talk right there. I mean, just returning to that well. Uh, over and over again and you know where did I first learn that there was a group called Steely Dan through De La Soul in this world of lust that I have for you it's true true so I think they also got a lot of us to maybe kinds of music that we would not have listened to otherwise through their sampling Totally true. Hey, can I tell you one last anecdote? Because I've got all this Dela on the brain. Yeah, please. So I was um <clears throat> we I I went on a hike with uh my girlfriend at the time, Deanna. We had, you know, like a 10-year gap in our ages. Driving back, it was a little tense in the car. I put on the De La Soul is Dead album and it played about halfway through. She's not saying much. She's just listening to this lo-fi masterpiece. And suddenly, out of nowhere, she's like, what kind of person listens to De La Soul? Damn. And I was like, okay, okay, I can switch this, no problem. Here come the lo-fi chill beats. But she was so mad. She didn't connect with it at all. Fast forward two, two years, and um, we're, she's in the process of moving out. We're breaking up. And um, I have the latest De La Soul, the final De La Soul album, playing on the turntable, De La Soul and the Anonymous Nobody. And um, there's a song on there with Little Dragon, and it's an incredibly beautifully orchestrated song. Not always a good thing. You can lose the love of your life through the lifetime of love on tour. I didn't mean to be a whore, but my hormones. Paz Denus is, you know, detailing some of his failures as a partner and, you know, desire to be a better person. Little Little Dragon is um, incredibly like, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but it's a very emotional, electronic, female vocalist fronted group. The female vocalist is wailing away on the chorus. And Deanna walks halfway down the basement steps and just like letting her little tears roll down her face. And she's just like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And I was like, yeah, this is De La Soul. <laughs> you uh. got me on, in the car. And she totally switched like one of the last um, 
one of the last photos she sent me from out and about was a um, KGNU presented De La Soul in a New Year's Eve concert and uh, of, of turning the page from 21 to 22. And um, she sent me a photo of hanging out with Maceo in the club. And she was, I, I couldn't be there because I always have to do these New Year's Eve mixes on the air. But um, it was just really cool to see that whole transformation, you know? Mm. Yeah. Wow. A strong point of connection um, through some of the best music, man. I mean, that, that, that's deep. That's really deep. So, Dave, man, you've been so generous with your time. Before you go, we always ask our guests, uh, no matter how distanced they are from the music world, to tell us what they're listening to these days, uh, what they listen to to inspire themselves, what they're listening to to wind down. And so it would be hilarious if we didn't ask you, of all people, that question. <laughs> so, so you know, and we'll, we'll ask it to, uh, you know, obscure athlete number 67. Uh, so I bring it to you right now. What's on your playlist right now? Well, I got to tell you, um, I just I'm I'm in a deep dive into an obscure form of electronic hip hop, primarily produced in 1982 and 1983, known as Smurfin. And I'm on a I'm on a total Smurf safari. Um, it, it's the same year that Planet Rock went platinum or gold. It was the only gold single of the year, but a lot of other alternate rap music wasn't even rap. It was electronic music. And a lot of it was about this mythology of the Smurf. So you've got Smurfy's Dance. You've got Salt by Spider D. You've got Salsa Smurf by Special Request. Search to Find the One by um, Unlimited Touch. Um, oh, God, what else is Smurfing? Um, Papa Smurf's Big Throwdown by um, some weird... There were so many of these weird Smurf 12 inches, and it corresponds with the Smurf dance, which um, there's a lot... It's, there's many regional variations, and I'm trying to nail down, like, what is the real Smurfing? <laughs> who, did, who did the lyric, I'm Smurfing, not rehearsing? I oh, I, man, you got to let me know. I'm trying to I'm, I want to be the aggregator of Smurf knowledge right now. No, no, because no, I remember Smurfing as a dance. And by the way, it's so funny, like you're not the first person to give that answer on the show. I think uh, Kareem also said he was into Smurfing. No, I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. <laughs> it's um, so good. It's these was, big beats. I'm Smurfing, not rehearsing. Oh, man, I'm. That's got to be a Beastie Boys line. They're so yes, nostalgic. yes, it's a Beastie Boys line. Absolutely, thousand percent. It's the Beastie. <laughs> Nicely done, Dave. Um, so thanks so much for joining us. Shout out, Dave. KGNU. Anything else you want to shout out before you go? Um, yeah, I want to let people know if I if you want to hear a Smurfin song, uh, you can check out Council of Words, third album, Indignorance. Um, our song, The Docket, on there is a good example of a Smurf and beat. And, um, you know, I would just say Smurf on into the future. Dave, though, how do we access the music? Oh, you find Council of Word. Really, we're not on all platforms because we're not thorough. We're a garage band, so we're limited. And we just are seen on Bandcamp. Council of Word, Indignorance album, the song, The Docket on Bandcamp. So go to Bandcamp, y'all, and we'll put that out on the Edge of Sports uh, Twitter feed as well. Uh, we'll be back right after this, after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. 
This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look. The United States suffers from a profound mistrust in institutions that used to be considered sacrosanct. Across the political spectrum, people are subjecting elections, politicians, the courts, and even science to unprecedented scrutiny. There is a crisis in confidence in the legitimacy of everything that was once foundational. And now we could add the ultimate all-American spectacle, the Super Bowl, to this list. After Super Bowl 57, in which the Kansas City Chiefs defeated the Philadelphia Eagles 38-35, rigged was trending on Twitter around the world. The game's culmination left much to be desired, and outside of Kansas City, howls of dissatisfaction echoed throughout social media. That's not the way the National Football League wanted to end its season. Its most valuable commodity is the idea that on any given Sunday, any result is possible. This was proven true but it wasn't the ending anyone wanted. For those who found other ways to spend their Sunday, allow me to explain. The score was 35-35 with under two minutes to go when Kansas City quarterback Patrick Mahomes threw an incompletion on third down. This would have forced the Kansas City team to kick a field goal and give the Eagles a healthy amount of time to try and tie or even win the game. But instead, a referee called a very shaky defensive holding penalty on Eagles cornerback James Bradbury. Kansas City took the automatic first down and ran out the clock, with Mahomes taking a knee, followed as the clock helplessly kicked down with a game-winning field goal. It was striking to see people of all political stripes, both in my house and on social media, unite around a shared idea. The call made a mockery of what had been a thrilling game, and who knew that seeing a quarterback take a knee could make NFL fans so mad? Far from sticking the landing, the NFL gave us three hours of drama, followed by a dud of an ending. Imagine Rocky IV ending with Rocky having to forfeit his fight against Ivan Drago because of a bad case of lactose intolerance. That would have been a more satisfactory ending for the Philadelphia faithful. It is true that Bradbury said after the game, it was holding, I tugged his jersey, I was hoping they would let it slide. But it's also true that the refs hadn't called that penalty or much of anything all game. They were letting the players play until the last two minutes when they became sticklers. It's a disaster, made more so by the perception that fans believe the great Mahomes has been shoved down our throats as the game's golden calf. We've been primed to worship his every play, so anything that looks like a finger on the scales for his benefit has the whiff of conspiracy. People could be forgiven for thinking that the game was in fact rigged, given the reservoirs of bullshit that threatened to drown it. We saw Rupert Murdoch and Elon Musk sitting together in one of the luxury boxes. As the cameras displayed our American oligarchs, the announcer Kevin Burkhart said, well, you've got some brilliant minds in that photo. Rupert Murdoch, Elizabeth Murdoch, Elon Musk, His partner Greg Olson was silent, which I'm choosing to read as a political act. After an awkward moment watching the elderly Murdoch play with some wax paper, Burkhart, perhaps realizing that he sounded like a minor member of a royal court, joked, Rupert pays our checks too, so that's always good. The fraud extended beyond deeming the plutocrats who ruined television news and Twitter somehow brilliant. There was a distressing salute before the game to Pat Tillman, the former NFL player turned Army Ranger who was killed in a friendly fire incident in Afghanistan back in 2005. Yet as per usual, when the NFL bathes in Tillman's memory, there was no mention that the military covered up the circumstances of his death and that the family never really got a satisfactory answer as to why he had been killed by his own troops. There was no mention that Tillman had turned against the war, calling the invasion of Iraq illegal as hell. There is no mention that Tillman had started reading Noam Chomsky. There is certainly no mention that Tillman certainly would have rejected the way his own narrative was woven into a tapestry celebrating the NFL, patriotism, and war. 
The fraud was also felt in the NFL celebration of Buffalo Bills safety Damar Hamlin, who almost died on the football field just last month. It was beautiful to see Hamlin cheered, but to see the NFL spin the way the sport nearly killed someone into a feel-good story felt morally abhorrent, like another lacquer of propaganda slathered on an already too slick product. And then there was the proud celebration of the Kansas City Chiefs' racist mascotry and the use of the chop to celebrate their team. I think the shot of Chiefs fans in Munich doing the chop was the cherry on the Sunday of racism that the NFL claims to oppose. The deceit included the hyping of the fact that the military flyover was for the first time an all-women endeavor. While this undoubtedly caused some aggrieved conservatives to spit up their nachos and call the NFL woke, because that's the word for anything that makes them even mildly question their own belief system, it was a political sham. There is nothing progressive about this, no matter how many right-wing trolls blow their tops. It reminded me of Olufemi Tawo's writings on elite capture, the flyover stunt cynically, using the movement for women's liberation for the purpose of U.S. militarism. The message is that while bodily autonomy has been trashed by the Supreme Court, at least this is a country where women can bomb people. The fraudulence also extended to the commercialization and the sheer glut of famous people bursting out of every ad. The U.S. is rich in celebrities, and they arrived in force to sell us anything that wasn't nailed down. Other than Ben Affleck achieving his long-awaited destiny of starring in a Dunkin' Donuts commercial, there wasn't much to see. Yet usually the game itself stands as an honest product amid the Super Bowl sea of flashbulbs, corporate criminals, and grifters. This is the secret of the NFL's success. Amid the commercial and militaristic sewage, the game is entertainment of the first order, commodified violence to rival anything out of Hollywood. But stories need endings, and this year the ending was as repellent as the surroundings, and that's bad for the NFL. It likes to sell us the idea that football is America. We shouldn't be surprised that in a country that feels rigged, people would assume the same about the Super Bowl. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. Uh, the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Uh, goes to Ron DeSantis, Ron DeFascist, uh, for his book banning affecting books for kids about Roberto Clemente and Hank Aaron because they dare talk about racism. So the students of Florida are being denied the history of Roberto Clemente, the history of Hank Aaron, two people who were all about love and community and progress compared to Ron DeSantis, who's all about eliminating those words from our collective vocabulary. So Ron DeSantis, just sit your ass down. And no, it's not a conspiracy of the teachers' unions that those books aren't on the shelves. Jeez, what an incredible jackass. I swear, if Ron DeSantis in his run for president somehow travels outside the land of Florida, in other words, if he can connect with voters throughout this country, God freaking help us. That was the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. I just jumped right into that. That's a bad sign about our world. If the Just Sit Your Ass Down is in my head before the Just Stand Up. Well, the Just Stand Up Award this week goes to uh, the Alpine Ski Team. Uh, They've put out this, uh, the U.S. Ski Team has just put out this new uh, set of uniforms. That's very cool uh, because what they do is they are climate change themed race suits that they're going to wear at the Alpine World Championships in France. 
And if you look at the suits, they're arranged to show an Antarctica that is breaking up. Depressing? Yes. But good that they're using their platform to try to shake people to actually see what's going on environmentally in this country? Well, that's great too. So Just Stand Up Award goes to all the good people um, at U.S. Ski and Snowboard. Uh, that's what they're called. The Snowboard Man. Big success with the snowboard in the last generation, if you think about it. That, that was an unexpected leap. By the way, my prediction for the next unexpected leap, volleyball. There you go. You heard it here. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much, Dave Ashton, uh, for bringing it to us. Uh, we're going to put uh, his music out on our Twitter, Twitter feed, uh, his DJ work as well. People can check it out. Thank you so much to Dave Tigaboo, producer of this podcast. Thank you so much to the memory of Dave uh, Jolie Jolliker, a.k.a. Trugoy the Dove. This was truly a Four Dave episode. Everybody out there listening, mask up, stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.